This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, you're very welcome to Ulster University Belfast campus, especially those of you who aren't uh, who are new. Uh, as you can see, it's a lovely campus. We have tight quarters this this afternoon, but um, I'm sure that's going to contribute further to the vigor of the discussion and the intellectual activity. So. Um, this is the first of our series on women, peace and security at 20 years. Um, I should say I'm Catherine O'Rourke, I coordinate our, our gender research at the TJI and I, uh, I'm leading on the seminar series as well. So this is a timely, timely, timely time to be reflecting on women, peace and security. Um, obviously with 20 years since the first resolution um, in October 2000. Um, it's also the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration of Platform for Action. Um, which is the UN's fourth world conference on women and really the first place that we heard the slogan women's rights or human rights. Um, so thinking back I suppose um, on those dates from now what the women peace and security agenda meant in terms of I think global women's activism and indeed how international institutions responded to that activism meant a movement from um, kind of broad participative state processes like the Fourth World Conference on Women um, to the security space at the UN Security Council where we have a much smaller number uh, of states, subgroup of states making decisions. Um, and also the focus of the Security Council being on threats to international peace and security, um, a move very much from a human rights focus. So that has presented, I think it's fair to say, opportunities and dilemmas for women's rights advocates, um, for feminists who advocated going to the Security Council in the first place. Uh, dilemmas that are strategic and practical um, and yeah 20 years I think is a good time to reflect on sort of what those dilemmas have been um, how those trade-offs have worked out and uh, I'm particularly pleased that we're uh, we have Jamie leading off the series today um, you'll be aware of course that February is LGBT history month um, so nice also to be able to mark that um, but questions of um, LGBTQ inclusion have certainly been one of the one of one amongst many uh, questions that have been asked about the WPS agenda and the extent to which we can look to a body like the Security Council um, to lead us on sort of more kind of gender transformative agendas um, around gender equality. So um, with that I'm going to ask um, Jamie to kick off. Jamie is a lecturer in international relations at the Queen's University Belfast. She's also co-director of the Queen's University Centre for Gender in Politics with whom we're delighted to co-host this seminar. Uh, she's got She's really, I think it's fair to say, been the leading voice um, in terms of uh, bring, asking sort of queer critical questions about the WPS agenda. Um, we're very fortunate to have her in Belfast and particularly fortunate to have her uh, with us today. So welcome, Jamie. Um, Jamie's going to talk for sort of 30 or 40 minutes and then we'll move to Q&A. Okay, thank you for that introduction. Um, and this is my second time on campus. I'm so excited that uh, Catherine's organized this one piece of security at 20. Um, bringing uh, Amin straight here in Belfast, I can, you know, well, or in Northern Ireland, I can go to this series and do really uh, incredible work on women, peace, and security. Um, so thank you. As I've already said, that makes my life easier to just be able to go to those talks right here. Um, I did want to say a little bit more about my background before doing work in uh, academic spaces. 
I began, I learned about women, peace, and security through civil society. So I was, I got my master's. How many people are in master's programs out of curiosity? Are there folks, in, how many people are students in here? Okay. So I got my master's in uh, political science. I really wanted to do something with women's rights. And so what do you do? I went on idealist. And um, I found the Social Science Research Council, and they had this project. Did not have any idea what women's security was, but when I uh, started working with them, I learned that uh, the project was really about bringing activist, academic, and uh, practitioner work together on women's security. So that's the perspective I learned about WPS. And then I went on to work with the Global Network of Women Peace Builders and Peace Women to uh, think about. Uh, really women's inclusion and peace and security work from that perspective. So um, let's see if this will behave. So today I will, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a brief what is women, peace and security, very brief because uh, this whole series is about that, right? And then moving into some of my research talking about what women, uh, the difference between thinking about women and thinking about gender in women, peace and security. And then um, what it means to actually think about queer peace building and inviting queer peace builders to be a part of women, peace and security before then hopefully having a conversation with folks, with all of you in this room about who you think it's important to be a part of that conversation because I really reject the idea that this is some sort of new concept. Even if it's not, even if it's new to the literature, I definitely don't think it's new in practice. So. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm resisting this idea that uh, women are all straight. <laughs> I have to continually remind people that lesbians are women too. And that, um, you know, using these, these words, heteronormative and cisgender, um, I also reject the idea that these are too complicated. I mean, literally children use them. I mean, <laughs> it's important that we use these words to resist violence. So um, I, I'm talking about that in the women, peace and security space, and then what it means to intentionally pay attention to sexual orientation and gender identities, that door homophobic. Um, <laughs> and then sort of queer reimaginings of women, peace, and security. And I love using this photo because I was digging around in the lesbian her story archives and I, and I found this uh, queers for peace sign. And it's one of those things where when I'm doing this work, I know that there are people who thought about this and said this and been in spaces where this has been said, right? But it's just not, it's not in the literature, it's not in many of the rooms I've been in, so I just, it made my heart sink to find the photo, so I like to share that during um, my presentation. But, um, so in short, my research, in my research, I consider the experiences of LGBTQ people in conflict, a group of people who have historically been excluded from conversation, are we locked out? <laughs> it is a whole <laughs> Uh, been excluded from conversations about victims of violence in conflict-related environments. And as I said, I came to this work from the side of NGOs. Uh, so to do the brief, what is uh, Women, Peace, and Security, um, UNSCR 1325 reaffirms the important role of women in the prevention and resolution of conflict, peace negotiations, peace building, peacekeeping, and a post-conflict reconstruction. The resolution stresses the importance of equal participation and full involvement of women in all peace and security work. But uh, the resolution urges all actors to incorporate a gender perspective in peace and security efforts. And the resolution requires all actors to take special measures to protect women and girls from gender-based violence, particularly rape and other forms of sexual abuse in situations of armed conflict. 
And I would argue that certainly the latter part has been what's gotten the most attention in terms of like what the Olympian security architecture is good for, what it's doing, right? But for me, are you okay? Do you want some water? <laughs> Get you some water. <laughs> it's a tight corner, right? Um, okay. So these women, peace, and security resolutions, of which there are nine, nine, uh, created a space where grassroots activism could vie for being part of the conversation about peace and security. Yet today, uh, only four percent of signatories to peace deals are women, and so you know, as we know, this is a really powerful time to be reflecting uh, on what women, peace, and security is doing because it's the 20-year anniversary. Uh, and for me, the this point about a gender perspective is really what motivated me to keep asking questions to and to, I would argue, ask more of women, peace, and security in some ways, in some ways. I mean, others will certainly say women, peace, and security is sort of being burdened with doing so much more work than it could possibly do, but I'm at least pushing the, the word gender to be able to encapsulate all that's possible in it, right? But so how is gender perspective understood, and how is gender understood? These questions motivated my curiosity as a researcher. Um, as I said, I ended up doing three different internships, and then I worked as a consultant doing women, peace, and security work in New York City. And something I kept being profoundly confused by as a lesbian doing this work were the assumptions organizations seemed to be making about who women are. And whether or not they were making these assumptions, the policies developed by these organizations seemed to serve a very specific version of what it means to be a woman, or who women in conflict are, right? So it became important for me to understand how people who work on women, peace, and security think about gender. As a way of investigating this uh, and, and how women, peace, and security might also recognize lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women, as members of this community, I interviewed 20 different women, peace, and security practitioners. And I asked them, what do you mean when you say women? And what do you mean when you say gender? And you know, hour-long interviews, right? Uh, so I, I talked to them about gender, women, and the possible inclusion of sexual orientation and gender identity in women, peace, and security work. Underneath all of my questions was my concern, as I said earlier, about the use of women and gender as categories that actually use, are meant to mean the same thing. So leaving aside a feminist gender analysis, that would include attention to lesbian, bisexual, or transgender women. So this is, this is what I was concerned about when I started doing these interviews. I was also concerned about this absence of attention to homophobic and transphobic especially given so much attention to sexual and gender-based violence, what's going on, but there's not questions about transphobic and homophobic violence. As problematic as those frames are, why aren't we at least asking these questions? I found that often those I interviewed fell into traps driven by heteronormativity and cissexism, which resulted in dangerous assumptions that left queer and trans women out. Oops. Okay. We did that. Um, so, a neglect of LGBTQ individuals is in part the result of assumptions about sex and gender in the framing of the Women, Peace, and Security agenda. To more completely understand how gender matters to Women, Peace, and Security programmatic work, it's helpful to take a closer look at the terms women and gender, moving the conversation from a narrow focus on two supposedly sex-based categories, women and men, to a broader focus on gender, is a feminist project that refutes this assumption of a sexual binary and challenges heteronormative assumptions. Uh, so heteronormativity, for those who aren't familiar, is this worldview within which heterosexual relationships are the preferred or normal orientation, right? This idea that it's normal. And people with non-heteronormative 
sexual orientations and gender identities are, are not served by projects that assume that there's only two categories, right? And that they're in opposition to one another. Um, so in my research, which is actually what ends up happening often with victim perpetrator narratives anyway, they become two categories that are then opposed. In my research, I call on WPS policymakers, researchers, and practitioners to be wary of cissexism or the assumption that only cisgender people are normal and right. Uh, a focus on uh, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women destabilizes this idea of this myth of heterosexual cisgender woman in conflict, again, who's the victim, who's like experiencing violence perpetrated by men. I mean, that's definitely a really problematic and perpetual myth, right? So it's critical to me that conversations about uh, how a gender perspective in conflict matters also account for sexual orientation as well as gender identity when thinking about a gender perspective. So what is gender and who are women? Uh, I narrow in on, the, as I said in my interviews, I narrowed in on the categories of women and gender. And uh, I, I can talk a bit about my interview findings. I did these interviews in 26, 20, 2016 and 2017. And as I said, they were hour-long interviews, women, peace, and security practitioners. Most of them had worked as gender advisors in some capacity, but also for those who've worked at WPS, Kind of a revolving door. It's very common to be an academic who's also a who's also worked on policy, who's also helped to help to draft uh, women peace and security resolutions. So, um, you know, I, I found who to talk to by asking those I talked to. So snowball sampling, right? But some of the things that emerged were this idea that gender is hard to define, which makes it hard to use. It's often conflated with women, and how people use gender depends on the context which I think really needs unpacking because there's really potentially damaging outcomes for that. And uh, the definition of gender has changed over time. And that sometimes it's, deep, it's a really depoliticized Western way to talk about women's rights, which I did not see coming in these interviews. I did not expect people to say that. And I think there's a lot going on in terms of the internationalization of talking about women's rights through the UN and maybe the limitations of the UN as, as a space, and Security Council as a space to be doing this work. But that, to me, was one of the more startling findings, right? So these are two of the quotes. There's difficulty in taking a complicated academic concept and translating that into practical application in a complicated environment and just the resistance to it. I mean, just good old-fashioned sexism. So these are folks who are talking about being the gender advisor who's sent out to go you know, do the gender work in post-conflict, and then you enter an environment where, you know, let alone being able to talk about gender in a complicated way, you're experiencing just good old traditional fascism, maybe, but sexism. <laughs> I think I and maybe many others had these complicated notions of gender that went beyond the simple male-female divisions and thought of these things. Uh, the critiques of the women, peace, and security field are that women is being used interchangeably with gender. I think that's very true. So this is a another one of the quotes that I got. So this would have been around 2016, right? So just getting some confirmation of the concerns I had from the civil society side, hearing that indeed practitioners were um, running into some of these challenges. And then uh, thinking about women, right? So some of the themes across these 20 interviews were this idea that women is biological, it's part of the binary system. There's no difference between women and gender. Women as a category includes all those who self-identify. Was some people were making that argument, and usually those people were the ones who were talking about uh, it's important to have an understanding of intersectionality, which is something that has entered women, peace, and security discourse. I think if you look at the, um, 
15-year review that came out in 2015, there's, there is attention to, okay, what does it mean to think intersectional, intersectionally in WPS work? And then um, arguing as a category, uh, women is used, again, to centralize and victimize. So maybe people being not as interested in using the word and, and, and explicitly saying, I don't like using it because of this. But then you have this quote, uh, there hasn't been any need to define women. I think we, the WPS community, are all looking at the sex identification is biological as opposed to gender, which is a social construct. So there isn't really a definition of women. In the 11 years that I've engaged in this issue, I haven't been involved in any discussions where we needed to define it. So um, I think this definitely holds up. I think if you go to WPS pages, find a definition of women and send it to me because I don't see any. And I mean, we can talk about the dangers of making definitions, but at the same time, there's a lot of, as we're seeing, there's an erasure that happens not intentionally defined, right? So, and, and, and I will now talk about those dangers, right? So claims persist that LGBTQ identities are a Western construction, and that lesbians don't exist in some of the conflict spaces where WPS actors are intervening. But in pursuing this research, I'm especially motivated by the civil society reports by human rights organizations such as Human Rights Watch, Outright Action International, and International Alert. Two examples of these reports include When Coming Out as a Death Sentence, which focuses on targeted violence in Iraq, as well as When Merely Existing is a Crime, from International Alert, which focuses on how sexual orientation and gender matter in conflict-related environments. These organizations track examples of violence that specifically target LGBTQ individuals. For example, during the Iraq War, there were instances of homosexual men who were violently targeted because of the length of their hair or the clothes that they wore. Uh, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women also experience unique vulnerabilities in conflict. However, often their needs in complex humanitarian emergency response or post-conflict reconstruction projects are overlooked, even by those working so hard to draw attention to women's experiences in conflict. So in my work, I draw together insights from queer activists, along with queer scholarship that highlights the experiences of queer people in conflict-related environments. And one way that I'm hoping to bring that into women, peace, and security is by looking at these three P's of women, peace, and security, which is this uh, participation, protection, and prevention. These are sort of the pillars that a lot of uh, trying to measure and, and see how we're doing with WPS and what we can do with WPS is framed. So moving from theory to practice and focusing on my positionality as an actor with experience as a practitioner, I'm interested in the role practitioners can play in this inclusion of lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women in WPS work. Querying the WPS architecture as, as imagined by some of the recommendations I'll offer builds on this call for intersectional attention to sexuality as a part of women's identities. But simply adding sexuality to a checklist, which is one direction that, that has occurred in some, uh, in some work, it's not enough to understand the needs or provide the necessary support for these communities. So queering practice is about uh, reconsidering who WPS practitioners should be working with as part of peace and security initiatives. And it's something that actually really excites me, the idea of thinking about what queer peace building is, who queer peace builders are. Um, so by participation, prevention and protection, I'm referring to the, com as I said, the commonly used framing of the three central parts of WPS. In 2009, UN Deputy Secretary General Asha Rose Maguro used the 3P framing to discuss implementation. And here's this quote, we need to prevent this resolution from remaining simply words on paper, 
Let us ensure that it is used as a tool to demand the protection and empowerment of women and girls, especially in those countries emerging out of conflict. It must serve in practical ways to promote women's participation in peace processes and post-conflict recovery. So I build on this understanding and apply a queer analysis to broaden the possibilities of this WPS agenda. So although Miguro was speaking directly to member states at the UN, the analysis I use is primarily meant for practitioners and academics. So the work I'm doing is really reflecting back on those of us who are you know, making claim of like doing WPS in these spaces, right? I provide examples for ways that state civil society actors and academics can broaden the monitoring and advocacy for the implementation of WPS resolutions to also include lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women. And so as a way to start, I can talk more about this in the Q&A if you're interested, but um, you know, I wrote this policy brief for the LSE, which I have two whole copies of with me, if anyone's interested. Um, to think through, okay, so what would this look like in practice? What am I really asking for? Because that is the frustration a lot of people have with queering and queer, um, especially people who are new to it. But what the heck are you actually asking? And so, you know, the five suggestions, policy recommendations I made were one, in include LGBTQ people in developing, implementing, and monitoring WPS projects. And the reality is, of course, queer people have been here doing this work. But whether or not um, there's a space where people are invited to identify and organize in that way is a different project. So to be intentional about that does ch change the room you're in. Expand indicators to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Define women and gender as two distinct terms. Collect data about LGBTQ individuals in conflict. We can talk about whether or not that's happening in Northern Ireland and, and how, how well we think that's going <laughs> as, as, as one way to reflect on this. But generally, it's not. And, and there's, I would argue, a lot. I mean, there's, there's reasons not to, but there's also, um, I think, more questions need to be asked about why it's not being gathered. Um, engage with the UN Independent Monitor for uh, LGBT Violence and Discrimination. We now have one of those <laughs> since 2016, so why not take advantage of working with that individual? Uh, these recommendations are meant as a starting place for those working on WPS to bring issues of SOGI into the current work already being done, right? So in order for this to make a meaningful impact for queer communities, the initiatives should include lesbian, bisexual, and transgender leaders from the beginning of the project. From the beginning, right? This can't be like a workshop at the end. It needs to be something that's intentional and, and, and reaching out and, you know, centering these voices, right? This collaboration can better shape ongoing WPS initiatives rather than require this silo of separate initiatives for considering sexual orientation and gender identity. So uh, the NGO Working Group is this group of civil society organizations that uh, draft up monthly action plans about what to do next with WPS, what we need to be prioritizing. They look at specific uh, country cases and things like that. You can find it online, it's all open. Uh, and in late 2018, Outright Action was invited to join this NGO working group. Uh, so that was the first time that an LGBT-specific organization joined the group. And on their website, they explain, UNSCR 1325 continues to frame WPS in a heteronormative framework that emphasizes a gender binary and ignores the vulnerability of many trans and gender nonconforming people to homophobia. UNSCR 1325 also fails to draw connections between the inequalities faced by people of diverse sexual orientations, gender identities, gender expression, and sexual characteristics, and the broad category of women and girls. 
So um, some concluding thoughts before we go into the specifics of what this networking might look like if we look at the example of Northern Ireland. So querying in the big picture sense uh, as an examining issues from non-normative perspectives. So that's sort of the nugget of how I think about querying if we're not just talking about LGBTQ identities, right? Uh, beyond heteronormativity, provides a way to bring to the surface the inherent limitations of current gender justice of current gender justice work that relies on the state or UN agencies for these three Ps of women, peace, and security work. By looking through the lens of indigenous and queer activism, it's clear that neither the state nor UN agencies, such as UN women, are equipped to engage with issues of systemic heteropatriarchy or cis sexism. Though this may be viewed as a pessimistic reading of what is possible for civil society actors in the international arena, it is also a way to return to the radical roots of women, peace, and security architecture. I also want to be, I'm like not pointing to some like fantastical point where WPS with this amazing feminist radical vision. I don't want to like suggest that now, like whatever, but I do think that we've gotten really trapped into some versions of where WPS can happen and what needs to happen that a lot of actors, especially on the local level, I think are super resistant to, right? So it's a way to return to, uh, rather than rejecting the work that has been done, a radical investigation of the WPS agenda benefits from a queer reading that reminds us how, instead of trying to work through the system, many of those women fighting for peace at the Security Council aim to present an entirely different vision for what as well as who matters in issues of security, right? So applying a queer theory lens to strategize about the future of WPS allows new ways of imagining a gender perspective that also rethinks what forms of action count as peacemaking. So as someone who is informed by queer, trans, and decolonial scholarship, I'm motivated to ask how and why the heteronormative woman continues to operate as the default understanding of who women are in spaces that are working for a radical gender perspective. It's a valuable contribution to reflect back to those practitioners' privilege to be working in a place of power about how it is that they continue to enforce these damaging heterosexual assumptions about women. This is especially important work for those who responded in my interviews that they had never been asked about lesbian, bisexual, or transgender women as a part of WPS work, which happens more than once. In other words, simply asking the questions about queer women to many practitioners is a way to acknowledge their existence, our existence, and highlight the importance of including lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women in the WPS agenda. A queer critique of who perpetuates violence recognizes that women can be rapists, peacekeepers can be rapists, and the state can also be a violent actor. Queer activists have long challenged the idea of looking to the state for their security. Queer IR, queer IR international relations scholarship offers new, quote, resistive possibilities, as Cynthia Weber writes. What are lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer women to make of the implementation of a, quote, radical gender perspective that is simply unable to recognize, let alone support their lived experiences? How can the feminist killjoy who insists on these radical possibilities continue to push the WPS agenda for new collaborations, inclusions, and reimaginings of what a radical gender perspective looks like in practice? This question is one for the future research, my future research, as answering this question will require conversations with LGBTQ organizations and queer women living in communities where WPS projects are ongoing, which to my knowledge are in most spaces not happening. I do think they are happening more so in Northern Ireland to some extent. 
I've made the case that asking questions about SOGI and data and discourse is a critical part of understanding a gender perspective in peace and security work. I've also shown that any attempt to cut corners by limiting a gender analysis to women, and usually only those women assumed to be cisgender and heterosexual, at that is a flawed approach. By reducing conversations about gender to only women, practitioners and academics simply hinder their understanding of the experiences of those whom they work to support and limit the extent to which radical change for gender justice can be achieved. So the WPS architecture continues to provide one of the few spaces, this is where I tell you why I bother with WPS after being so horrifically uh, critical of it, right? So <laughs> the WPS architecture continues to provide one of the few spaces where women are able to bring civil, civil society voices into exclusionary spaces such as the Security Council and post-conflict peace building initiatives. So, you know, like, I'm not oblivious to that. It does matter. I mean, um, because of my experience working with civil society organizations, it's evident to me that through collaborations, true intersectional responses to the violence women experience can be achieved in meaningful ways that matter using WPS. Uh, I should also say I don't see WPS and security, women, peace, and security going away anytime soon. At this point, the architecture has achieved a certain place in international discourse. Uh, that was really hard-earned in peace and security. And there's also something like five programs that are offering master's degrees in studying women, peace and security, okay? So there's a real commitment and investment um, in this uh, across generations. So, so there's something to be said for, for that commitment in terms of uh, the global community. But the tensions are real. Critiques of securitization, as well as the challenges of looking to the police or the state for security for queer communities who've been targeted, uh, may mean some individuals or organizations don't have any interest in working with WPs and security. But regardless, collaborations in some capacity must be sought because whether or not LGBTQ organizations are explicitly included, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women are part of WPS. Queer women are everywhere, whether or not alliances seek to support them. Part of the challenge of, of excluding lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women uh, is in part because of this lack of education on behalf of those who simply have never had to think about their sexual orientation and gender identity, even though everyone has one. <laughs> so everyone has a sexual orientation, everyone has a gender identity, but yet I hear from people that they don't feel equipped to talk about it if they're not part of the queer community. We need to challenge and resist this idea. So I argue that in times of great insecurity, it's not an option to put aside queer questions for later. Strategies must be made to invest, investigate how to collaborate, listen, and learn while investing time, money, and other necessary resources. So um, certainly the Colombian peace process is one that's being held up as a really important step in terms of seeking to do this work. And um, I'm hopeful that continued commitment to intersectional peace building as evidenced by the 2016 Colombian peace deal and preceding peace negotiation uh, process, which had the most, it, it had the most extensive consultations with LGBTQ organizations of any peace process. I'm hoping, the hope is that this might be setting a new precedent, right? Rather than seeing the backlash uh, against feminist and queer activism as a time to step back from speaking up for inclusion of lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women as women, the WPS is well-placed to seize this time to step up and support these women as a part of the important gender justice work in their communities and on the international stage. I also don't want to just end on a glowing note with the Colombian peace process because there's been spikes in increased violence against those who do put their neck out and talk about human rights. So to me, that's why it's not an option for WPS whether or not to take up these queer questions. Um, 
those who are in the space on the international stage to be talking about women's inclusion and peace and security really need to be doing that at a time when people have made themselves especially vulnerable. I mean, they haven't made themselves vulnerable. They are vulnerable. Um, and I did want to talk about what I'm thinking in terms of peace networks in Northern Ireland, queer peace networks. Um, I got here in September, so I'm still learning, and I'm hoping that at the end of this talk, maybe I'll, I'll learn more about what else is already going on. But I think part of it is reimagining who gets to count as being part of peace building. I, I talk about how I think Black Lives Matter is a peace building organization. I think resisting police violence is absolutely part of peace building, and it's led by uh, queer women of color. So that's not a model to be thinking about in terms of um, tr you know, transitional justice and, and resisting uh, conflict. I'm not sure what is. But um, you know, the Rainbow Project and actually quite a few collaborators put this <coughs> conference on. Did anyone go to this conference in 2017? I wasn't here, but they're continuing this work uh, on thinking about diverse voices in peace building and, and highlighting LGBTQ individuals in that work. Um, we already mentioned that the center is, uh, you know, certainly we're hoping it's a space to promote research that, that brings these connections together in terms of uh, academic literature, but also making sure that that information that's what's already happening on the ground is taken up. So we're not, you know, we're not trying to reinvent this idea of, of what this activism looks like or what policy, policy uh, actions might be. It's just to learn best practices from what's already going on, right? Um, which I, I think actually Northern Ireland is, is a really interesting case because of the necessity to provide the direct services with a non-functioning government. So um, there have been a lot of uh, LGBTQ and uh, gender initiatives to provide services when there, I mean, if there's no one else to do it, people here have been finding a way. So why not make sure that that's something that's being translated um, into the national and international dialogue, because that's absolutely part of post-conflict reconstruction and gender peacefully. Uh, certainly thinking about, I mean, Fidelma Ash right here did the project on, you know, queer art and theater as a part of um, thinking through conflict. So I think it's really, I think things happen and then sort of disappear. And then there's this idea that we're inventing queer inclusion and, and peace building for the first time, and that's very frustrating to me. So I would like to uh, help make sure that these stories are not uh, excluded. And, and I do think that sharing narratives of queer experiences through art and theater can be a really productive way to invite people into the room who might not otherwise want to be part of it. Uh, and then I guess I, I really love this quote from Sophia Pierre-Antoine, who was the former, uh, she, she was part of Frida Young Feminist Fund. She, she says, we must change the narrative of young women as passive victims and young men as perpetrators while ignoring trans youth. Young women and trans youth are already doing incredible peace building work, so find us, support us, and fund us. So find us, support us, and fund us is sort of my mantra. <laughs> and um, I also love this Repeal Hyde Art Project. And uh, I just want to end on queer futures for gender justice. Uh, this is coming out of specifically the uh, the Hyde Amendment bans federal funds from supporting or funding abortions in the U.S. and it's still on the books and it's really detrimental to uh, low-income people, especially people of color. And so out of this, Megan started the Repeal Hyde Art Project and, and writes, nothing is beyond my reach. We made these systems and we have the power to dismantle them. So um, 
if I didn't believe that, I certainly wouldn't be bothering with any of this. So uh, I'd like to leave on this note and certainly urge you to check out the Repeal Hide Art Project if you, for your future queer and feminist uh, motivational uh, mantras. So um, thank you. And I'm going to hand out a little form that I hope we can uh, you know, all share some of our thoughts on queer peace building and, and who should be a part of this conversation. And I'm happy to take your questions.